What do you think it would be like if you invited Jesus to come for lunch today? How do you think that would go? (laughs) Uh, We find an example of that in our text this morning in Luke chapter 14, where Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee. And you know how the religious leaders and Jesus got along, so you can probably imagine that it got a little bit uncomfortable for the Pharisees. And that's exactly what we see in this passage. Luke chapter 14. I'm going to read just the first six verses. And we'll look at verses 1 through 24 this morning. Luke chapter 14. We begin at verse 1. It happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees on the Sabbath to eat bread, they were watching him closely. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. And he took hold of him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on a Sabbath day? And they could make no reply to this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that we share together this morning. A word that reveals to us what we are by nature. How we love ourselves and want to put ourselves first. Uh, Lord, this uh, meeting, this uh, meal, this uh, conversation that took place between you and the religious leaders got very uncomfortable. But you wanted to teach them, Lord, and open their eyes to the truth. And we pray that you would do that with us this morning as well. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a little boy who, when he went to Sunday school, his mother would always ask him what the lesson was that day. And he was a pretty sharp boy, and he listened well, and so each Sunday he would tell what the story was about. And then she would always ask him, and how does that apply to your life? Well, one Sunday morning it was the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you know the story where the man was beaten by robbers, and along came the the priest and the Levite, and they walked by the other side. Then came the Good Samaritan, and he uh, put oil in his wounds and paid for him in a motel and so forth. So, little Johnny comes home, and he explains the story just perfectly. But he didn't quite get it in terms of the application, because when his mother said, now how does that apply to your life? He said, when I'm in trouble... Others should help me. That was his application of the parable of the Good Samaritan. What does that illustrate? Does it not illustrate that by nature we tend to look at ourselves, we tend to love ourselves, we tend to look at the world from our own personal vantage point? And you see that most uh, easily in children, don't you? Uh, They love themselves and they want their own way and they're sometimes not very subtle about that. They'll let you know if there's something they don't like. As adults, we become a little bit more subtle in that, right? Uh, We still have that nature within us where we 
want to put ourselves first, but we're just a little bit better at hiding it. But we still struggle with that. And even religious people struggle with that. Let's face it, you see that so clearly in the passage that we look at this morning, where you have the Pharisees very firmly confronted by Jesus about being lovers of themselves. So that's manifested in various ways in this passage we look at. Notice, first of all, that lovers of self put tradition before compassion. The events of our text took place on the Sabbath day where Jesus then is invited to the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees for a meal. Now, that might seem like a nice gesture that they would invite Jesus to their home. But from what we gather in our text here, it really appears to be a trap. And we we, we can come to that conclusion, I think, because Luke says in verse 1 that they were watching him closely. What was Jesus going to do in their home on the Sabbath day? Because they had already seen that he had done some things on the Sabbath day that they did not like, and so they were watching. What's he going to do? And it appears as if they kind of planted this man at that meal. There was this man that was uh, suffering from from dropsy, we're told in verse 2, and they placed him right in front of Jesus. As if to say, now, what are you going to do about this? Here you are in our home. We've asked you to come for a meal. You're gathered with all of these religious leaders. Here's this guy that needs healing. And they're just watching. What is Jesus going to do? Well, the first thing Jesus did in verse 3 was to ask them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If they said yes, then they would appear to be soft hypocritical regarding their stringent measures, their man-made traditions about Sabbath day observance. But if they said no, then they would probably be accused of being uncaring about human suffering. It was one thing for the Pharisees to condemn Jesus for what he did on the Sabbath, healing on the Sabbath, but it was quite another thing to take responsibility for this man who really needed healing and, and stopping Jesus from doing it. So they really. And what was their response? They couldn't say anything. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They were silent. They had no answer to that. So Jesus heals the man in front of them, and then he asks them another question. Verse 5, he says, which one of you will have a son or an ox fall into the well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath. So you've got a son, he falls into the well, you're just going to let him sit there? You've got an ox, he falls into uh, the well, are you just going to let him sit there? How do you answer that? Well, they had no answer. Verse 6 again says, and they could make no reply to this. One author says the Sabbath regulations allowed them to rescue their animals. So to forbid the deliverance of humans would have meant that they treated their animals better than people. And they obviously didn't want to give that impression, but that's that's kind of how they felt because Jesus was repeatedly criticized for healing people on the Sabbath day. And so they were ones that put their tradition... Above 
compassion because they really didn't love people. They loved their traditions more than people. Lovers of self put tradition before compassion. Following their man-made traditions made them feel more spiritual, that they were much better than everyone else. Which is a sign they were lovers of self and not lovers of others. Second thing we notice, lovers of self put themselves before others. Jesus is watching them as they are watching him. And he notices something interesting in verse 7. It says, and, as, and he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Okay, so Jesus is watching them, and here's all of these religious leaders coming, and they're looking for a place to sit. What were they picking? The places of honor at the table. So these people wanted to be noticed. They wanted to feel important. And so they boldly and selfishly placed themselves above others. So Jesus tells them a parable. He tells them a story. Uh, some of you were here Wednesday night when Pastor Kevin Olson was with us for the picnic. And he talked about orality teaching and how stories have such a powerful effect. Well, here's one example of that where Jesus tells this story, a very pointed parable. It's getting a little uncomfortable for them. Verse 8, he says, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, some of you were at weddings yesterday, weren't you? Do not take the place of honor. For someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say, Give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And then Jesus illustrates the truth here with this story. Verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, this was something that the Pharisees were aware of, this principle, because it was spoken of in the Old Testament. For example, Proverbs 25, listen to the similarity here. Proverbs 25, 6, Do not claim honor in the presence of the king, and do not stand in the place of great men, for it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. So they understood this principle. When you go to a feast, you don't choose the place of honor. You choose a lesser place because it would be very embarrassing if you chose the place of honor. And then the, the host comes and says, you know, this seat really isn't for you. I heard of someone who went to a twins game one time. And there weren't that many people there, which is kind of normal. Anyhow, so he decided to go down and sit behind home plate. Empty seat. Sits down and the person, what do they call it? The ticket tape, whatever, comes down and taps him on the shoulder. Says, you got a ticket for this place? He said, no. He said, I didn't think so. That's, that's Mr. Polab's seat. So you better move. <laughs> Place of honor, huh? 
He had to be moved. So having knowledge of the Old Testament, the Pharisees were well aware of this principle. They knew it well, but they had no intention of following it. They put themselves before others. Our Kent Hughes says the truth was there for all to see. The Pharisees and scribes, despite all their God talk and religious posturing, were a selfish, self-seeking, ambitious lot. Selfishness always reduces the importance of others and enlarges the importance of one's own life. I'm the greatest, so where's my seat? I'm superior, and this place reflects my worth. They assumed that if they did not get the chief seats, the meal, regardless of how good the fare or the fellowship was, would be a bummer, he says. It was important that they be seen in a worthy place. Is it important to you that you be seen in a worthy place? Do you seek to reduce the importance of others so that you can enlarge your own? Do you want to be seen as, you know, one of the movers and shakers and just the important people of this world? You know, some people aren't very shy about their view of their own worth. Like this boy who had won some award and it was, he was just kind of thinking about that. And it was just really going to his head. And finally he said, Mom, he said, how many great people do you think there are in the world? Assuming he was one of them, of course. And his mother had a very wise answer. She said, one less than you think, my son. <laughs> how many great people do you think there are in the world like like me, huh? Well, one less than you think. But then there are others that are a little more subtle about it. One author says, we loathe the proud climbing in others, but we do it too, only far more subtle. The trick is to get into the prominent seat without appearing to try. Huh? He goes on to say, to get there all the while protesting. No, 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 no. This, this really should be for me all the while. You're thinking, yeah, it should be. But you say, no, 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 no. That's not for me. To decry it in others while we ourselves subtly pursue it. Do you know that we can be guilty of appearing to be humble in order to be exalted? We know the principle, right? He who is humble shall be exalted, so we're going to appear to be humble just so that we can be exalted. Is it possible to be proud of our humility? If we're proud of our humility, we don't have humility, do we? We've lost it. Someone has said that humility is one of those things that when you think you have it, you've lost it. So here they were, choosing the the best seats, the prominent places, because love of self puts ourselves before others. Kind of getting uncomfortable for the Pharisees, huh? I don't think they were too happy that they invited Jesus. Someone's probably thinking, well, who, whose idea was this? He's exposing what we really are in our own hearts. Third thing, lovers of self put the temporary... Before 
the eternal. So after telling a parable to the ones who had been invited to the meal, don't choose the the best place, then Jesus has a parable to the host. He addresses the one who had invited all these guests that day for this, this meal. Notice what he said, verse 12. And he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Why? Otherwise, they may also invite you in return and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, Jesus told this parable probably because he sensed that the one who was hosting the meal had invited all his buddies, right? All his friends, all the Pharisees. And they were probably in the habit, well, we'll we'll go to your house on this Sabbath day because I know that you're going to invite me to your house on the next Sabbath day. Kind of like... uh, I'll scratch your back and you scratch my back. I'll give you a favor and you will give me a favor in return. So they were inviting so that they would get something back. But Jesus said, you know, this is a very short-sighted way to live. This man was not living with eternity in view. His focus was on this life alone. And Jesus made that clear to them. He said, when you have a feast, you invite the poor, you invite the crippled, the lime, the blame." The blame, the blind, the lame, you will be blessed. They don't have a way to repay you. But God has a way of repaying you. And He said, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. See, Jesus is saying to them, If you are living only for this life, you are going to give with the expectation of getting something in return. But if you are living with eternity in view, it doesn't matter if you get anything in return, because that's not why you're living. You're living with eternity in view. And you know that your reward will come when you stand before God. So love says, I'm going to give, and I'm not going to expect anything in return. So if no one thanks me, or no one returns something that I've given to them, That's not going to bother me because that's not the reason why I gave. I'm living with eternity in view. And these people were not. And Jesus was confronting them again about their love of themselves. So can you imagine it's really getting a little bit more uncomfortable? Here we invite this guy and what does he do? He just, he attacks us. He he. Gives us the law. He shows us how sinful we are. And and we really don't like that. So, it's kind of interesting to notice what happened. There's a man here that kind of is going to save the day now for the Pharisees. At least attempt to do so. Because after Jesus shares this parable then with the one who had invited the guests, this guy says in verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, He said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Okay, so Jesus was saying, you know, you've got to live for eternity. So he starts 
Yeah, that's right. You know, blessed is everyone. We're going we're gonna to eat uh, together in, in the kingdom of God. Uh, one author says this, the exclamation sounded good, but it was insincere. Its pious language evoked everyone's assent and a momentary hope of escaping Jesus' onslaught. <laughs> he's going to save the day. He's going to stop all this, uh, uh, these parables that are just, just hitting us, right, cutting our hearts. He says the man's statement mirrored the religious leader's corporate confidence. In essence, it meant, blessed are the likes of us who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Amen. Well said. Now pass the bread. <laughs> he was trying to get the focus off themselves and say, you know what? Won't that be wonderful when we all eat together in the kingdom of God? Now let's, let, let's just eat now. We don't, we don't need any more, of these, any more of these parables. So he was trying to, as a lot of people do, when it gets uncomfortable, what's the easy thing to do? Let's focus on something else. Let's not talk about us, okay? Let's not talk about, you know, our, our, our love of self and our selfish attitude. Let's talk about that day when we all gathered together and were eating around the table. Okay, let's just do that. But Jesus wouldn't let it go. He wouldn't let that statement go without a response. He knew that there was little desire in their hearts for the kingdom of God. So there at this meal, this Sabbath feast with all these religious leaders at the table, Jesus had, no, I've got to tell one more parable. Okay? So he gives a fourth characteristic of those who are lovers of self. Lovers of self put possessions before salvation, before the kingdom of God. Verse 16, he said to him, a man was giving a big Dinner. Now notice he's, Jesus is using this whole uh, dinner thing and all the parables that he's telling really focusing on, on, on a dinner. And this was a big dinner. And he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to come to those who had been invited. Come. Everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land. And I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I bought a five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and he said to his slave, go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges, and compel them to come in, so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Now, what's the big dinner Jesus is talking about? The big dinner is a picture of salvation. It's a picture of God inviting us to be a part of His family, to be a part of the kingdom of God. And He says, Come, for everything is now ready. What's that say about salvation? It's been paid for. Jesus did it all, right? He gave His life for us. And He offers to us salvation as a free gift, pictured in 
coming and partaking of, of this big, this wonderful dinner. But when the banquet was ready, the excuses started to surface. Not legitimate excuses, but ridiculous excuses. The first one in verse 18, he says, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Would you ever buy a piece of land without looking at it? Ever buy a house without looking at it? I mean, how ridiculous is that? A flimsy, ridiculous excuse. The second one's no better. He said, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go and try them out. Please consider me excused. Now, we don't buy oxen, but we buy cars. You ever buy a car without trying it out? Only one I know of is my dad. When it's time for a new car, he called the guy that he bought cars from and said, Norm, need a new car. He said, okay, I'll have it for you on Monday. Okay, we'll see you then. Bye. My mom says, what color is it? I don't know. What kind is it? I don't know. Norm's got it for us. He's the only one that ever did that, but most people never do that. You don't buy a car without trying it out. Another flimsy excuse. Verse 20, another said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. How many of you wives would be angry with your husband if he went to a banquet? I don't think most wives would be angry about that. So all of these excuses, were they legitimate? There was, there, was, there was no basis to these excuses. They didn't have any interest in coming to that banquet, which pictured the Pharisees that they didn't have any interest in really following Jesus and becoming part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was revealing to them that all of their excuses were ridiculous. I think I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again. So if you remember it, just bear with me, I'm getting old. So there was this Chinese man who bought a plow. First plow in the area. And his neighbors saw that, and one of them said, can I borrow your plow? And he didn't want to borrow his plow, so he said, I would like to let you borrow my plow, but my wife is using it to comb her hair. And the guy says, your wife is using your plow to comb her hair? He said, well, not really. But when you don't want to do something, he said, one excuse is as good as the next. Isn't that human nature? When you don't want to do something, it doesn't matter what the excuse is. One excuse is as good as the next. And that's what we see here. They didn't want to come to the banquet. They didn't want to follow Jesus. And so the excuse is, they didn't make any sense. But when you don't want to do something, one excuse is certainly as good as the next. So the point that Jesus is making here is that the Pharisees really weren't interested in salvation. They weren't interested in the real kingdom of God. Other things were more important to them. And that's the case with many people today, isn't it? Other things are more important than the kingdom of God. Other things are more important than Jesus. Other things are more important than salvation. So people value their possessions. They value their portfolios, their cars, their homes, their education, their sports more than Jesus. But you know what? The consequences of that are so tragic. 
Notice how the parable ends. The master heard all the excuses and he was determined that his house would be filled. So he told his slave to go out and, and invite the outcasts of society to come in. He said, I've invited them all and there's, there's still room in my house. Which is a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? There's still room. There's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. We who are spiritually poor and crippled and blind and lame are invited to come to the feast. Everything is ready. All we have to do is come. But notice how it ends. There were those who rejected the invitation. Whatever their excuse might be, there were eternal consequences. And Jesus ends then this meal. It wasn't really on a positive note. You know, we're taught in preaching that we want to end on a positive note. And I have noticed sometimes that Jesus didn't always end on a positive note. Because here's what he said, the last thing he said at this meal. For I tell you, none of those who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Why? Because they rejected the call. That's the reality, isn't it? As the gospel is proclaimed, the invitation is given, come for all things are ready. Jesus paid it all. He offers you freely uh, salvation. The kingdom of God is the gift. And what do people say? I'm not interested. Something else to do. I'd rather go look at my land or my my oxen or I just got married or whatever. I don't have time for Jesus. Our scripture from Isaiah 55 was another invitation, right? Come to the waters. Come and buy without money, without cost, freely given. And there's a warning given there, isn't there? In Isaiah 55, listen to how that passage ends. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's the beauty. When you come to Jesus, he will forgive. He will pardon. He will cleanse. He will give you life. But you need to seek him when he can be found. Call on him when he's near. What does that mean? There's going to be a time when he won't be found. There'll be a time when it's too late. When life is taken just like that. We've, we've seen that amongst our community recently. 55-year-old Chris that died a couple weeks ago. 50-year-old 50, Peter Strumman. Many of you know him. Suddenly, seek the Lord. While he may be found. That must have been an uncomfortable meeting that day, that dinner, when they invited Jesus there. But he spoke the truth to them. He did indeed. And we don't want to be those who just sugarcoat everything. We need to speak the truth. And the truth is that you need Jesus. And you need him today. You need him now. Don't turn him away. Don't make up a flimsy excuse. As to why you don't want Jesus, because there is no excuse that is of any value whatsoever. Come, for all things are ready. Lord, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you, as you spoke to these religious people, 
He spoke truth to them. And I'm sure many of them just walked away unaffected. Perhaps there were some that heard that day, some that responded. Lord, help us to be among those who see our, our need for forgiveness. We, we, we see, Lord, that we are basically selfish people. But you have come to save us from ourselves, to save us from our sin, to give us salvation and hope and peace. Lord, do your work through your word here this morning. Uh, draw us to yourself. Um, break down those walls and um, reveal to us the foolishness of the, the excuses we might make as to not coming to your great feast of salvation. For we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.